listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Caroline, and today we're talking with Paul Johnson. Paul is the 17th president of the Colorado School of Mines, Tom's alma mater, and a global leader in education and research in engineering and science, set out to solve the world's challenges related to earth, energy, and the environment. Johnson began his career at Shell, working on environmental projects. He taught and served as the Dean of Engineering at Arizona State before taking the leadership role at Mines four years ago. In this discussion with Tom, Johnson describes dramatic improvements in student learning experience across campus, including more interactive and project-based learning, and asking students to wrestle with issues of ethics and social responsibility. Let's listen to more from Tom and Paul. Dr. Paul Johnson, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Well, thank you. Welcome to Minds. It's uh, great to be back on campus. Um, where'd you go to high school and did you have a good chemistry teacher? I went to high school in uh, Walnut Creek, California, Las Lomas High School. And I, I, yes, I had a great high school chemistry teacher. I, I probably didn't realize it at the time, um, but looking back, I would, I would say yes. I also had a really good physics teacher as well. Why uh, did you go to UC Davis? Well, um, for, for all the reasons that, that people wouldn't normally think of. Number one, my, my older brother was going to Berkeley, so I wasn't going to go so there. So you didn't want to go to Berkeley. <laughs> um, uh, Davis was about two hours away from just, Walnut just Creek. Far so just far enough away right. from the family that, that you know, there wouldn't be any expectations to come back home. And it's a campus that uh, anyone who's ever been there will understand this. It's, it's, um, the main mode of transportation is bicycles. Right. So you don't have to have a car. Right. You don't you actually sort of bike between all your classes and everything else in the town is sort of set up for that. And I, I really kind of was attracted to that. And you studied chemistry there. I, I started as a chemistry major. So I, I came in as a chemistry major. And at the end of my first year, I um, switched majors to chemical engineering. Um, you went all the way through with a PhD. Were, yes. were you planning on a career in, in academia at the time? No, I don't. I don't think I really knew what I was going to do career-wise. I, th- I think the the PhD was um, something that just looked like a a challenge goal, and uh, no one in my family had an engineering degree. No one in my family had a PhD, an advanced degree um, at PhD level. And um, it just, you know, I had an opportunity and uh, an opportunity to, the other thing I think that attracted me to the PhD was I had learned probably around my junior year that if, you know, if your grades were good enough and you got in the right schools that your graduate program would essentially be free. Right. Right. You'd, you'd, get, you'd get paid a stipend, um, your tuition would be covered and... Uh, you know, you get to work on some cool research stuff. But instead of academia, uh, you went to Shell. Mm-hmm. Um, what what attracted you about working for Shell? So the the interesting thing to me about Shell at the time, um, so actually, yeah, when I was getting out of school, I, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. But but I I sort of quickly concluded I didn't want to have anything to do with academia anymore. <laughs> and uh, and so I was interviewing with um, with industry and. Uh, Shell had a number of opportunities um, that it let, let me choose from, and one of them was they had just relatively recently formed an environmental 
research and development group. And in that group, they were they had hired um, civil engineers, hydrologists, chemists, microbiologists, um, and they and they wanted um, some chemical engineering expertise to complement that. And I I just thought it was the neatest thing to have all these different disciplines around you that that I knew nothing about, um, but I'd have the opportunity to learn from and. Um, Really, all those were needed to work on the, the challenges that Shell was expecting us to work on. And what kind of problems did you work on? Were they, these are yeah. interdisciplinary problems. Yeah, they were. They were. I, I, we didn't. We never called them interdisciplinary yeah, problems. I guess we only call them that in yeah. academia. <laughs> but um, I, the types of things I worked on for Shell was um, I, I, I was working on um, helping develop technologies to clean up their contaminated waste sites. Uh, or places where they had spills or environmental issues, particularly groundwater contamination problems and soil contamination problems. And so uh, I got to work on developing new technologies. I got to um, develop new ways of um, trying to figure out whether or not sort of chemicals over here could impact people over there. Uh, I got to work with um, regulators in the process and um, inter- interface in a way with the public through that, and so it was um, really interesting to me because it was a it was a time when there, you know, the remediation field was just beginning, and uh, the opportunity to work on something and actually sort of see it in action and and try to communicate that to people who are non-technical was also right. kind of some of the very interesting aspects of it. So Shell at that time uh, became really widely known for their work in scenario planning and yes. systems thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, did you get some early exposure to that? Um, not not really. Uh, I, I knew it was there and um, you know people of course still talk about it today uh, as one of the stars of that. But it that didn't really... Um, funneled down a lot to what I was working on. I think uh, a lot of people credit Shell with sort of creating the the study of the future. Um, there's still university programs in Houston that uh, came out of, uh, of of Shell. So it sounds like it was an interesting environment. Then you uh, you had a mid a mid uh, career shift back to academia. What I did what drove that? Well, I. I had had a couple colleagues that I worked with at Shell who had made the switch um, to being professors at, at uh, universities. And uh, in my time at Shell, I was working with um, universities on short courses and um, interacting. And, and I was sort of at this point in my career where um, uh, the next logical step for me in Shell was to move into management. And I wasn't quite sure I wanted to give up the technical side of things. And uh, the sort of opportunity to see if I could be good at being a professor um, seemed like an interesting challenge to me. And so uh, I just decided to take that leap and see what it was like. So I I showed up here in... uh Golden 40-some years ago, and um, it was a tough place to get in and a, I think a tough place to go to school. It, I, I recall 
um, a lot of sort of disconnected classes of, of plug and crank. Um, what's it like to go to school here today? Well, it's, st- it's still challenging. Uh, I think that's, that's an inherent part of minds, and I think that's what uh, produces such outstanding graduates is, is the challenge has a lot to do with it. Um, the, the plug and chug nature, I don't think, was necessarily unique to minds. I mean, that was in some ways kind of the style of engineering education right. um, in the past. And there, you know, there always will be some emphasis on making sure you can do calculations correctly. Um, but the value of an engineer going in the future isn't how well they do calculations, right? right? The, that aspect of engineering has been replaced by computers and sophisticated programs and, and design tools. And so the, uh, if, you, if you look at um, the education today, particularly at Mines, um, whereas you might have spent a lot more time um, assessing whether you as an individual were proficient at doing certain calculations, um, what you tend to work on today are more open-ended problems, more design challenges. You're working more in groups. Um, you uh, you have the opportunity to to um, work on teams that are competing in national engineering challenges with students from other schools, um, and uh, you can see a lot more connection between what you're working on and what the impact of that work is out in society and industry. Who goes to school here now? It was not, not very diverse when I was here 40 years ago. Uh, it's, it's, it's changed. Um, so uh, today we have, I guess, if, if you look at sort of the student body demographics from a lot of different measures. First of all, we attract students from all over the country and all around the world. About half our students are from in-state, half of them from out-of-state, roughly. At the undergraduate level, about 5% of the students are, are international students. It's a higher percentage at the graduate level. If you look at the, the gender makeup of the student body, um, when you were here, it might, maybe it was, I don't know, 10% yeah. women would be my guess. Um, today, we're at uh, 30% women amongst the students, and the incoming freshman class next year is going to be close to 34%. Mm. Um, so that's a pretty significant change on the campus. If you look at um, underrepresented um, backgrounds of students, we're you know in the 20th percent range on that, um, and uh, and then of course um, students from sort of all socioeconomic backgrounds. What we're trying to do is to um, make sure that um, in fulfilling our public mission that we would like our student body to um, reflect the, you know, the, the community that we serve. So that's kind of our um, way, of, way of assessing where we are sort of demographically. So it strikes me that your graduates are becoming involved in more and more complex issues, more and more complex systems. Um, how, how do you think about preparation for that world, both sort of in disciplines, but also across disciplines? Yeah, that's a great um, question. And, and I, you know, I think the, the point that you make in the question is, is accurate. Um, that, um, and, you know, certainly as, as engineers and, and scientists, um, in whatever roles we play in society and industry, you have to really understand um, how your work connects to everything else around you. And so, 
Um, some of the way we accomplish that, so for example, in the, in the I mentioned earlier about how we have a lot more open-ended design challenges. Um, so when you come in as a, as a first-year student, um, you have a sort of, an, in some ways, it's an introduction to engineering course. We don't call it that. We, we, we call it um, a cornerstone now. Um, and uh, it, it's, you know, you're, you're given a challenge that's defined by, you know, either the community or industry or something. And as a, you know, a freshman, before you even know anything about, you know, all the calculus and physics and differential equations and everything like that, you're your team has to come up with a solution. Um, and so you, you instantly sort of understand the aspects of the, um, you know, sort of client input and all the perspective they can provide for you on, on things as, as well as um, sort of bringing your, your background. At the senior level, there's basically, you kind of repeat that exercise in a, in a capstone course, but now you're really using your engineering skill set um, to, uh, to solve things. Um, and again, those are those are uh, using um, clients who are providing projects um, who can really provide pretty good perspective on things. In between, um, almost uh, I think just as you did, almost all of our students do internships, right? You learn a lot about the world through your internship and uh, um, how it's very important in in whatever your whoever you work for to sort of understand the the big picture there. We also have added a, a number of, I'd say, opportunities for the programs. So our, our honors program, for example, looks at um, uh, societal context of things and, and policy implications. We have a, a, um, uh, a the, the Payne uh, Institute for, um, for actually Payne Institute for Public Policy is now the, now the name, I think. Um, so we've got that on campus so students can see public policy connections of, of the things that we're working on. We also, from a complexity standpoint, if you look at um, what the students are doing, I would say about you know, maybe a half to two-thirds of their, their education takes place in the classroom, and the other third to half is actually taking place in all their activities outside the classroom. And so, you know, obviously, the internships that we mentioned are one of those, but many of the students are involved in professional societies, um, they're involved in, in competitive teams. So, for example, one of our um, student teams is uh, it's called the uh, Digger Loop team, but they they design um, a Hyperloop sled for the SpaceX um, Hyperloop competition. You know, the concept there is you're 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 building something that um, within an evacuated tube can accelerate up to about 300 miles an hour. Um, and then decelerate again over the total distance of about a mile. So you're really, I mean, you've got all the control systems, you've got all the, I mean, you've got electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, computer science people. So you're really getting this sense of, um, you know, complexity both from disciplinary standpoint to the, um, the impact of your work uh, to, to all those things. So it is, it is um, I think, and I think that's what makes today's engineering education really exciting because you do get a chance to see all that. Um, innovation often uh, triggers a, a set of ethical issues or at least some tough uh, community choices. Yeah. And we're, we're seeing that now with accelerating innovation in so many different 
fields, and and it looks like cities and states and governments are um, are really being pressed uh, to deal with this wave of complex issues. Uh, w- what role do engineers play in that? Uh, is that somebody else's problem, or do you increasingly see engineers informing the the public dialogue about innovation? I certainly think en- engineers need to play a role in that dialogue. Um, they're, they're obviously not going to be able to represent all the perspectives and, and anticipate all of the potential outcomes, but, but um, I, I don't think an engineer can simply say, uh, you know, here's my work product, I'm done, right. the world has to figure it out. Right? You, you really do have to understand all the implications. What's interesting is um, you know, both students and faculty are very interested in those issues. So um, we have an ethics bowl competition team, for example, and um, they they have gone to um, you know done in well enough regionally to go to the national competition every year since at least since I've been here, uh, and they that group specifically you know, gets it, um, you know I think some of the more interesting complex challenges right. um, come up as issues in these ethic bowl competition things. If you look at the uh, McBride Honors Program, that's a it's another great platform for student and faculty discussions on, on ethical um, and policy, impl- you know, implications of both policy and engineering. Uh, and uh, so it's, what's, what's kind of neat is that we're kind of at a time where it's really important for engineers and scientists to be engaged in those discussions. And we're also at a time where the, the students who are coming to us are also very interested in that right. aspect of things. Uh, 40 years ago, there wasn't much humanities in the curriculum. There wasn't a, a lot of focus on communication abilities. Would would I see more of that today? You, you definitely would see um, a more deliberate um, structuring of the humanities um, options. So we, you know, it's not just humanities. So we have a um, one of our faculty groups is humanities, arts, and social sciences, and so they deliver. Courses obviously that fit into those those categories um, that students can can choose from. Some are required and and um, some are electives uh, for the students. You know, we get um, you know it, one of the things that's generally true is uh, students who are, tend to be high performing in uh, math and sciences and engineering uh, frequently have a very strong connection to art, music, and other things. So having those components here is is, um, is pretty important. Uh, as well, and then again, the the honors program. We have both the first year honors program and then the McBride honors program that that provides students opportunities to, um, uh, you know, I think sort of fulfill their interests in those areas as as well. So this is a diverse place, and you know, you serve the energy industry among others, but what's the is there a mind's perspective on the the subject of sustainability it's a is um well our, obviously our tagline is earth energy environment so um i would you would hope we would uh i think there is a um I, not a perspective from a policy standpoint but a perspective that um Sustainability is a very important topic that our graduates have to understand across various fields. I mean, it, it comes into play in different ways in different fields. So, for example, if if I work in the extractive industries, 
um, sustainability is not just an environmental issue, but it's an economic issue, right? So you have to, you know, whether you're uh, working in the mining industry or the oil and gas production industry, you have to kind of look at yourself as a, as a, as a steward of the earth. And for some period of time, you're, you're kind of extracting the, the things that, that you need, but you have to think about what was, what was the value and use of that property before I got there and, and what's it going to be and what's the value to the community after I leave. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of an example of that, the um, Henderson mine uh, up the hill will, you know, next few decades close down and um, Freeport McMoran and um, Climax Molybdenum came to us and did an innovation challenge with our students to come up with what's the next best use for that property once it's no longer being used for mining. Um, so that's an example of considering sustainability and extractive industry standpoint. Um, of course, if you're in um, uh, an, another um, industry, I don't know, let's just say you're in, in, the, in the energy industry, right? And you're looking at all the different potential supports, um, the different technologies that can supply energy to, to society. You're, you're, now you're trying to consider things like life cycle assessment and, and costs beyond just the cost of the energy. And so we have, um, we, we now have uh, a, a course that's focused on sustainability that students can take um, in that area. Across the uh, agenda of earth, energy, and environment, what developments or coming innovations are you most excited about? Well, we've got a lot of things going on here. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm, you know, if, if you um, look in those topic areas, I think in the, you know, sort of the, what I'd call the earth category, Right, our, our um, traditional geosciences and extractive industry strengths here at Mines. Um, this actually, this aspect that we were talking about, which is preparing engineers to to really understand the full life cycle of their operations and and gearing our programs to produce engineers that are ready to, to handle that is is a is an important thing. That industry is going to have a pretty significant changeover of its workforce in the next ten years. So we have the opportunity to really produce the leaders that, that take that on. Um, also in that area, we've um, recently in the last year, we, we um, signed a new cooperative agreement with the United States Geological Survey. And uh, the, the net impact of that agreement is we're going to be bringing 150 to 200 of their scientists and um, staff and their lab equipment, uh, their data, um, anyway, their expertise is going to be coming here to campus. And so that will, that will effectively, you know, double or triple our geosciences expertise on campus. And so those USGS folks will be obviously working on their USGS mission, but they'll also be at the same time faculty here at Mines and advising students and providing internship opportunities. Um, and so we're, we're pretty excited about that opportunity in the, um, what about alternative energy? In the alternative energy space, we've got, um, you know, the, the probably the, I don't know, the two or three biggest challenges in that space. Um, one is obviously energy storage um, because of the, the intermittency of um, renewable energy sources. And so we've got people that are working on some, some pretty neat energy storage concepts. There's um, folks who are working on things that taking, um, you know, for example, natural gas, which has now turned out to be incredibly abundant in the United States, and um, creating processes that lead to conversion of that, for example, directly to um, 
uh, to cleaner products that can be used in energy schemes. Um, so the, the environmental impact is less than it is if it's just combusted, for example. Um, the other thing in, in the um, alternative energy space that's, uh, I, I think not everybody really has thought about too much yet is um, in moving to um, uh, other energy schemes, um, it's shifted the, or it will shift the demand for critical elements and uh, other earth resources. So if you think about batteries, for example, right, right there's a lot of uh, critical minerals and elements that are involved in, in batteries. Um, and so we are, for example, our, our uh, pain Institute um, that works on policy issues is looking at that. How, how is that going to um, sort of shift us from having, you know, worrying less about maybe our carbon footprint and thinking more about um, what is the, what are the geopolitical and um, security ramifications for the United States? Because these components that we need aren't necessarily found or mined here in the United States. Um, and then we've also got a lot of really cool things going on in advanced manufacturing um, for the aerospace industry. Um, uh, a lot of interesting things going on in the water area. Um, so we, we could probably talk for hours on yeah. cool things going on. Um, wh- what did you learn from Michael Crow at uh-huh. ASU? Um, so M- Michael's pretty interesting. You know, he's a he's a trailblazer. He is. Um, and uh, I think what I, you know, what, what, I, what I learned from Michael is, uh, I mean, number one is um, you're never really going to make a change unless you set aggressive goals for yourself. Um, I, I think also the, the sort of historical model of higher education is probably what's not needed for the future. And so, um, you know, taking the bold step of sort of being different uh, is something you have to be um, willing to do. I think th- the other thing is really encouraging um, the culture of your university to be entrepreneurial and to not a- be afraid of taking risks, right? F- failure, you know, if you come up with 10 ideas and two of them work out great, that's, and, you know, four go down in flames and the rest people forget about, that's still okay. I think like ASU, um Colorado School of Mines is part of the Keen network. Yes, uh, a network of forty-three universities that that try to cultivate an entrepreneurial mindset. Mm-hmm. Well, what, what does that mean to you? Um, well, it means uh, things at various levels. Um, so one is, as we were just talking about, um, you would like your university itself to be entrepreneurial. So, so you thinking of the university as almost as an organism, right? That, or, or thing that, that it itself has to be entrepreneurial and innovative. So you've got to have that component of things. The, the, the second part to me is, um, you want to, um, create an environment in which, um, particularly for our faculty and our graduates where they can be innovative and entrepreneurial and that not be a detriment to getting their degree or getting promoted and tenured. Um, at the, you know, my experience um, with sort of entrepreneurial in innovation activities has always been that frequently the best entrepreneurs would never have earlier in their lives identified themselves as being entrepreneurial. 
Right. They, they only became entrepreneurial when they were in a situation where they were so passionate about something that in order to make it happen, they had to acquire those entrepreneurial skills and knowledge. Um, I've seen that happen over and over again. And so one of the things I want to do here at Minds is, is, you know, in that um, first year, second year, third year, fourth year experience, always have um, these sort of learning environments where, where students are going to pursue a project or an idea that um, then may make them interested in acquiring those additional skill sets. One of the things we're doing here at Minds, um, which... Um, this uh, network is particularly interested in us for is we're engaging our alumni. So um, they haven't seen this at any of the other schools, but we have a, um, uh, we have three or four, what I call we've launched um, special interest groups for, for our alumni. One of them is just entirely focused on innovation entrepreneurship. One's on the aerospace industry. One is on, uh, women at Mines. Um, one is on leadership and social responsibility, um, but the the innovation and entrepreneurship group has it, it's um, several hundred members. Um, they are all interested in helping Mines and our students um, become more entrepreneurial, and uh, and so that uh, extra piece of things is is um, what. Uh, what has this network interested in, in what we're doing today. We also have big plans for, we're um, going to be building a sort of a centralized physical space called the, uh, it's just sort of affectionately referred to as the, you know, hub right now. Um, but that will be a place where, you know, basically all student design and just free form creative activities take place. So, uh, some component of its maker space, some component of its meeting space, some component of its creativity space, um, some component is, is opportunities for um, uh, incubator business startup. We've got connections with a, a company here in town that does um, uh, coaches companies um, and, and startups and has uh, connections to, um, uh, you know, angel and venture capital groups. Um, so it's one of the things I'm, really excited about what's particularly neat about this effort that we're driving is it started with students. So the first month I was here, um, a group of students approached me at an, an alumni event. Um, and they said, we, we would love to have more opportunities for innovation entrepreneurship, um, here at minds. We're willing to do the work and, uh, can we make it happen? So we've just, steadily been using the, the students um, to really, really drive that. So you've been here four years now? Four years, yeah. Anything you're particularly proud of, of what the team has accomplished in the last few years? Um, that's, a good, that's a good question. I, 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 you know, we've, um, we're, we're really focused on the year 2024. And the 2024 is very special to Minds because it'll be 150th anniversary. Um, and so we, we have a plan. It's, uh, it's called Minds at 150. Hmm. Uh, very, very snappy, right? Um, and uh, it, it pretty much is, um, you know, the main emphasis of it is let's make sure we are positioned for another 150 years of success and impact and producing great leaders coming out of Minds. 
Uh, and so there's a there's a a lot of things in there, and it, it came from a lot of input from faculty, students, staff, alumni, business part, you know, or industry partners. And so we have a bunch of things we're trying to do. We're 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 you can start to see the progress from the execution of that plan. So um, this year we launched our first ever fully online degree program. Mm. Um, we uh, we launched the world's first space resources program. Um, we have a number of new um, masters and um, sort of post bachelors non-degree programs out there that we think would be really useful for sort of continuing education for people in their careers. We've we're loosening up the undergraduate um, education, so there's more opportunities for I think interdisciplinary learning and um, connections. More emphasis on on design. We've got the you know we mentioned the um, USGS partnership. We've got in place now. Um, we've launched a uh, just a game-changing effort in advanced manufacturing area. Um, we have um, people thinking about other what we're referring to as sort of frontiers initiatives that'll really leapfrog everybody else and put us at the forefront of the developments and the discussion on a, in a number of developing areas. So we're, we're, you know, we're getting there. We're also, we have a master plan that goes along with this strategic plan. And, and um, if you walk around campus, you'll see uh, new residence halls going up. That's, that's part of that plan to make sure we have housing on campus for everyone for the first two years. So it's coming together. An exciting place. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, 2024 we have a we have a big celebration and you're there. I'll, and, I'll be um, here. And uh, you know we can we can look back at what was done the last few years and and we can say hey we're we're in a, we're in a good place for the future. It's great to be back on campus and uh, Dr. Johnson. Thanks for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks to Paul Johnson for hosting Tom on campus. As you can tell, Tom is enthusiastic about all the signs of progress at Mines. The Getting Smart team works with a variety of post-secondary institutions on their innovation agenda. We'd love to help your team too. To learn more, check out episode 191 on Northeastern University and how they're transforming educator preparation. For more on computing across the curriculum, listen to episode 190 with Amon Milner from Olin College. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and review the show. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Caroline signing off.